Good morning, everyone. <clears throat> it's great to be with you again. Today we're in Luke chapter 19, the parable of the pounds, or as I like to call it, kingdom business. Kingdom business 101. The crowd is very excited. For the last 10 chapters in Luke, they've been traveling from the north of Israel down towards Jerusalem. It's been a long trip and they finally got to Jericho. And there's just that last uphill leg and then they're at Jerusalem. And that crowd is buzzing because they believe when they enter Jerusalem, Jesus will ride in on a donkey, he'll be crowned king, he'll chase the Romans out and they'll rule the world. Jesus has explained to them that's not what's happening. What's going to happen is what has been prophesied by all the prophets in the past. They will take the Son of Man, they will hand him over to the Gentiles, they will mock him, they'll treat him spitefully, they'll spit on him, and then they'll crucify him after scourging him. And three days later he'll rise from the dead. But even the disciples haven't got the message. And the message seems to be hidden from them. The sad thing is that within seven days, Jesus will be dead. He'll be buried, rise again. And 40 days late, he's going back to heaven. They're going to be on their own. But they're not thinking about this now. They're coming to Jericho. And as they enter into Jericho... There's a blind man from the lowest level of society that Jesus heals. And as they're leaving Jericho, now Jericho is a very wealthy place. They have rows and rows and rows of palm trees and balsam trees. Very wealthy. And now we meet someone from the other side of society, the other side of the road, who's really top of his industry. His name is Zacchaeus, and Zacchaeus is a tax collector. And he's not just an ordinary tax collector, he's a very wealthy tax collector. He's the chief of the tax collectors, and so he's really in charge. He works for a boss who lives in a far country. And he has to collect taxes from his own people, and then pay them across to Augustus Caesar, across the river in Rome, across the sea in Rome. But what he does is he says, I think I could skim off so much. I'll give him what he asks for, but I'll charge my people more than they really should and keep the difference. And as he climbs to the top of the ladder, he's now the chief tax collector, so he's got underlings who work for him. Now he has a passive income. He's doing really well. He hears that Jesus has arrived, and he's curious. He'd love to know what is Jesus doing. So he goes to join the big crowd, and as he wanders across to the crowd, he comes to a point where he's very short, and he just can't see over the people. It's like being at a rugby match. When everyone stands up to see the try, and you can't see a thing. But he's a... 
climber in society. So he rushes ahead and he comes to a place where he's ahead of the crowd. And while he's ahead of the crowd, he spots a sycamore tree. He climbs up the sycamore tree. Now he's got his own personal corporate box. And he can watch the whole procession coming down and he knows they're going to walk right under the tree where he is. He's sitting in the chair nice and safe, nice and comfortable. Suddenly, he feels the eyes of Jesus boring into his eyes. Jesus is saying, Zacchaeus, hurry up, come down. I'm coming to your house today. Jesus has just exploded into his life. So he comes down, and now they walk away from the poor part of town to the posh part of town. Because the posh people live on the hill where the air is fresh and there's less disease. And they come to Zacchaeus' wonderful mansion. And Jesus and his 12 disciples walk into this amazing place. And as they're talking, Zacchaeus says something amazing. He says... Lord, I'm going to donate half my goods to the poor. And then if anybody has been cheated by me, I'll pay them back four times. The Lord demanded 20%, I'll give 400%. What has happened? Jesus has exploded into the life of a crooked businessman. He's now converted He's no longer working for himself. He's working for Jesus because he calls him Lord and he repents of his sin and he says, I'm stopped doing the bad things. I'm going to live for you and for you alone. Jesus says, now is salvation. Come to this house. As my, because he's also a son of Abraham. Because the son of man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. As they're listening to these things, Jesus starts telling a story. Do you think this is kind of rubbing here at all, causing that crackle? No, it's your mind. Oh, okay, that's fine. <laughs> and none of the commentaries mention this. But it seems to me the story arises out of Zacchaeus' house because it's a story all about money, it's about pounds, it's about trading, it's about making a profit. So Jesus starts to tell the parable of the pounds. But I think there's another reason Jesus has got onto this story. Because in the posh part of town, there is the most spectacular house of all. It's the palace of Archelaus. Can you think back to Matthew chapter 3, where Herod tried to kill all the babies in Bethlehem, but Jesus escaped? When Herod died, his son Archelaus was appointed to look after Judea. Archelaus built a spectacular palace for himself out of money that he'd ripped other people off for. But there's a bit of a problem with him becoming king because he wasn't very popular to start with. And then just to add insult to injury, he slaughters 3,000 Jews in Jerusalem. And there's another problem with him being king because he's a foreigner. He's not a Roman. He's not a Jew. 
So he has to go across the sea into a far country. And when he goes to that far country, he will receive his kingdom. So he sets off in his little boat across the sea. And when he gets to the Caesar's palace, he has an interview with Caesar and says, I'm Herod's son, I want to be king. But he doesn't know a whole delegation of Jews have also done the same trip. And they're speaking in Caesar's other ear saying, we will not have this man to rule over us. And they don't even say this man, they just say, we'll not have this dot, dot, dot ruling over us. So Caesar's a bit stuck. So he says to the group, I won't make him king. And he says to Archelaus, you can be ethnarch, which is like, uh, but you're not king. And this is part of the background of the story. Because Jesus starts talking about a king who travels into a far country to receive a kingdom. And before he sets out, he calls ten servants to him. He gathers them all, and then he's got this big bag of money, and from this bag of money he takes out ten coins which he gives to each person. So all ten get exactly the same amount, and they set off on their business. And he says to them, trade until I return. Thank you. I just thought it was my voice. <laughs> so he goes away to a far country, and Jesus is also trying to say to his followers, I'm going away, and I'm going to be away for a long time. Just get this message. After a long time, he returns back to his country. And when he returns... He calls these ten servants. He commands them to be gathered to him. And then he says, well, how did you get on? How's the trading been? Comes to the first one. He says, Lord, my pound has produced ten more. That's good going. The next one comes along and he says, how much did your, your pound uh, benefit you? Oh, my pound has earned five more. So this is sounding pretty good. He says to the one with ten, Well done. I'm going to appoint you over ten cities. The one with five, he says, I will appoint you over five cities. But then what about um, the one, the third one who comes, and in fact... He says, I think we've gone a few slides ahead, sorry. Can we go back to the, um, probably slide number four? I might have put you wrong there with, the, with that one. Where the servants bring the, pros uh, the prophets to the king. There's kind of an old painting there. That's the one, yep. So this is where he's distributing all the money and, he, and now they're bringing back the profit that they've made. The last one says, Lord, here's my pound. And he unwraps the pound. And he says, I I I'm scared of you. 
And I was worried that you're an austere man because you pick up where you haven't put down and you reap where you haven't sown. He says, you're like one of those Bedouin chiefs that comes riding in when we've harvested our crops and steals them all. You're going to pinch my stuff. He's got the totally wrong appreciation of who this nobleman is. And he says, because of that, I hid it away. The nobleman says to him, you wicked servant, out of your own mouth, I will condemn you. You say you know that I'm an austere man and I lay down where I haven't picked up and I reap where I haven't sown. So why didn't you give the money to the banks? Why didn't you go to CAP at least? And, and, and I would have at least got some interest on my money. And then he turns to his servants and he said, take the pound from him. So he's got this sweaty little pound wrapped up in a handkerchief and they take the, this sticky pound from him and he says, give it to the one who's got ten. The servants say, hang on, have you got this right? He's already got ten. This is not fair. Now he's got an extra one and this poor guy's got nothing. And the nobleman says, to him that has, more will be given. From him that doesn't have, that will be taken away even the bit that he has got. And then he says, those servants who said, we won't let this man rule over us, bring them in here and kill them before me. So that's the story, but what does it mean? What the story means is Jesus is the king. And he's going to die, he's going to be buried, and 40 days later he's going back to heaven. The disciples will be standing there on the Mount of Olives, and they'll watch Jesus go up into heaven, and a cloud take him away. And he's going to be away for a long time. It's 2,000 years and counting. They got it completely wrong, this instant rule and peace. Mm -mm. 2,000 years that it's going on and on. But what does he say to these servants? While I'm in heaven, sitting at the right hand of my Father, waiting for my kingdom to come on earth in a physical way, I want you to work in my business. I'm going to give each Christian, each Christian here has been given 10 pounds. And he says, I want you to invest the 10 pounds in my business. The headquarters are not in Auckland like Cap, they're in heaven. And the headquarters in heaven, Jesus runs it from there. And he's watching what we're doing. And each one of you today is doing your business, working for God, trading with him. And the word actually means to do business, to trade. And we're doing it until Jesus comes back. Jesus could come back today and that's the end of the business. So there's a time limit. We don't have forever to invest in Jesus' kingdom. We need to get cracking because he's coming back again. Now you say, hang on, you can't say Christianity is a business. That's not right. Well, Jesus says it is. Jesus says, that's my business. It's very different to your businesses, but that's the business that I run. J. John was sitting on a plane once and the lady next to him said, so what work do you do? He says, I work for a corporation. It's a very large corporation. We have branches throughout the world. Virtually every country, we have staff working in that country. 
And we speak in a whole lot of different languages. We've got literature in all the different languages. She says, what is this business? I've never heard of it. He said, the Christian church. And we work for this wonderful, successful business that Jesus has set up. And there are different metaphors in the Bible used to describe the business that Jesus runs. Like a finance industry, Peter says we are stewards of the manifold grace of God. God gives us money and we use it as stewards for his kingdom. God gives us gifts, we use them as stewards for his kingdom. There's an energy from the fishing industry. Now I've got a friend called John. He's a high up in intelligence in the US, but he's got a batch in Pyro Bay just around the corner from us. And sometimes he takes me out fishing. Now, I'm terrified because I'm not good at fishing. And he's on the one side of this charter boat that he hires, and he's reeling in the fish, just pulling them in. And I'm on the other side, just setting bait. <laughs> and eventually he says, Steve, look, there's a lot of fish on this side. I'll go to your side. He's a, he's a lovely man. So he comes with his rod to this side, and he starts casting, and I go to his other side, and I'm waiting for that big snap. I see the big ones wriggling in the bin that he's caught, and, and the ones I caught were just kind of the right length in the ruler. And I start, nothing happens. Next thing, he's saying, I've got another one, and he's reeling them in from this side. Now, some of you are very good fishermen. You are great at spreading the gospel. You've got the wonderful way of just getting the message through to Jesus. You're doing that for Jesus' business. Jesus said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Some of you are good farmers. You're good at sowing the seed. Jesus spoke about sowing the seed. Your little business, you run your farm. And preachers of the word, those who preach on the pulpit, those who preach to Sunday school classes, those who preach to Bible study groups, and every parent, you're a preacher. Your job is to preach the word to your children. It's not the church's job. It's not Sunday school's job. It's your job. Mother and father. Dad, you can't come home and say, I'm too tired. I'm watching TV. It's part of your job to teach your children the word. And the most popular business analogy he uses is that of construction. Paul said, By the grace of God given to me as a wise master builder, God has laid the foundation and I build upon it. So we can all be construction workers in God's business, in God's kingdom. So what does a doing business involve? It involves the church and all the things we've heard about today, the things we've seen, the baptistry, the different ministries in the church, whatever you're involved with, that's part of what you're giving to God. That's part of the 10 pounds God has given you. Your gifts, your talents, your energy, your time, you're donating that to God. Leon Morris just says, living out our faith. But it's not just in the church. Because sometimes we make people feel bad because they're not on 17 ministries in the church and they're not leader of this and head of that and the other. And they're exhausted. And they sometimes feel left out. But Colossians 3 verse 23 says this. Whatever you do, do it heartily. As unto the Lord, for you serve the Lord Christ. So the next Saturday afternoon, you're pushing that lawnmower up and down. Those of you who don't have a ride on, like me, up and down, mowing the lawn. Just think, you're working in God's business. He had the first nursery. 
He planted the first garden, the Garden of Eden. So when you look at your beautifully manicured lawn, say, Father, I'm doing this for you. It's such fun being part of your, your business. When you look at those beautiful manicured edges, you're doing this for him. When you look at that vegetable patch where you can have tomatoes that are much cheaper than the supermarket and lettuce that is so much cheaper, just say, Lord, I feel like Adam in those early days walking in the garden with you. And you can feel it just adds to what you're doing. And when you're in the kitchen, think of Brother Lawrence who worked in the kitchen every day. But he said that was where he worshipped God. That's where he praised God. And he made cakes and he made bread to the glory of God. And if you just think of everyone in this church out in the community doing stuff for God. Ordinary stuff, stuff that's not spectacular, but it's changing lives. Whatever you do, do it from your heart as unto the Lord. When you work for your boss, make him realize that he's got a higher boss that you report to. So you set the bar higher when you're working for your boss. Because you're not really working for your boss, you're working for the Lord. And so you do even better work than everyone else. Why must we do this? Now, it's interesting that there's a profit motive, and this did disturb me. I thought, Christians, we don't do things for profit, surely. That's not right. Well, there's so much in the New Testament about Jesus bringing rewards with him one day. Because he knows that if we're not rewarded, there's something about us that won't do the job. I remember in the British Museum seeing a study of coins, and coins from Russia under Stalin. And there was a little poster that said, we pretend to work and they pretend to pay us. Because they paid everybody so badly, there was no incentive to do well that everybody just did the bare minimum. Jesus knew that and he knew he likes to set incentives for us. And what are these rewards? The first reward, well, it's part of a reward, but it's also a test by fire. This is the inheritance that we receive when we come to heaven. Paul said, Other foundation can no one lay except that which is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on this foundation gold, silver, precious stones. So imagine one day you're standing before Jesus and he says, Let's see your works. And you put this little pile in front of him. And along comes the fire. And the temperature cranks up. And the gold and the silver and the precious stones remain. And someone else arrives who was very well known in Christian circles and did so much for God. And this massive structure he presents to the Lord. But unfortunately it's built out of wood, hay and stubble. Just like this house. They were doing an experiment to see how quickly a a house made out of hay and stubble burns. And I get the impression it's pretty quick. And this poor person who was well-respected, well-known, all the good works have disappeared, and your little pile of gold, silver, precious stones remains. And you, I guess, get to keep it, because those are the works you did. They've passed the test. So that gold, silver, precious stones is part of the reward. But there's more than that. There's a crown. Now, this crown, it's based on the Olympics. It refers to when the Olympics were held in Greece and later in Rome, 
where the winner would be so excited. And the judgment seat of Christ is actually the word Bema, which means not a BMW. Sorry, I don't get this wrong. And even Colossians, the verse we quoted was Colossians 3.2.3, so I'm not talking at all about Bemas this morning. Don't get that wrong. What it is, it's actually the rostrum. So the emperor would be up on the rostrum. And then the winner of the Olympics, the world champion, would go up the steps and the emperor would place this wreath on his head. Do you know that emperor's a miser? He's the wealthiest man in the world. What does he do? I mean, I would imagine the athlete thinking, I could have gone to my back garden and cut down a, an olive branch and wound it around my head and stapled it together and I've got the crown. And I imagine the grandson a few years later saying, Papa, can I see the crown you won when you competed in the Olympics? And he says, well, well son, it was made out of laurel. Some are olive, some are laurel, some are oak. And you know, I brought it home. And it was in pride of place on the mantelpiece. And we'd show people the crown. But after a couple of weeks, it was kind of brown and dried. And then leaves started falling off. And then the insects got into it. And it was spreading mess all around the house. And he said, one day I came in, and Nana just thrown the thing out. She said, this is... A... Now, all the things we do, working for ourselves down here on earth, or working to please others, it's basically that olive laurel or laurel wreath that fades and disappears and then is gone. But when Jesus comes to his judgment seat, it's very different. He hands out solid gold crowns. Paul says, we do it for an incorruptible crown that never rots, never fades, never disappears. Now, there are five crowns mentioned in the Bible. So listen out. Find out, are you perhaps in line for a crown? Is there a crown awaiting for you? We'll start off with the overcomers. Paul says, don't you know that they who run in a race, they all run, but only one receives the crown. So run that you may obtain. And he says, everyone that runs in a race is self-controlled. Athletes are very self-controlled. When their friends are at the pub, they're doing gym. When their friends are sleeping in, they're up early in the morning exercising. He says they do it to obtain a corruptible crown. They achieve this crown that rots. I mean, can you tell me who was the Olympic champion in 1902 in the 100 meters? Anybody? You see, that crown has faded. It's rotted. It's gone. We don't remember it. Sometimes we can't even remember it from the last Olympics. But Paul says we control our bodies to obtain an incorruptible crown. We suppress bad desires, pornography, feelings of anger, because we're wanting that crown one day. So if you're managing to overcome the flesh and the old nature, maybe a crown awaits you. The next one is a tough one. It's the crown for martyrs. And there's not usually a lot of people queuing up for that crown. Unfortunately, around the world today, 360 million Christians are being persecuted. 
And about 5,000 a year are known to be killed every single year. And there's probably a lot more because countries like North Korea and China don't really give accurate statistics of how many Christians they've killed. But for those of us who are maybe not martyrs, those who endure severe trials, if you're enduring really severe trials for Christ, you could be in line for a crown. The third one is for pastors. We're told in Scripture, Peter says, when the chief shepherd shall appear, they will receive a crown of glory that fades not away. But not all pastors get it. It's those who preach the word, those who feed the flock, those who look after the flock, those who lead by example, and those who are not there for money because they feel they have to do it. So if you're a pastor and you fit those criteria... There's a possibility. The fourth one is soul winners. Those of you who are good fishermen. Those who are good at getting out there and spreading the gospel. Those people you've brought to Christ will be your crown and joy when Jesus comes again. And then the final one is the crown of righteousness for those who love his appearing. My son-in-law just, or sorry, my grandson just came back from a camp. And he said to his mom, I can't wait for Jesus to come. And I thought to myself, I wish I was still at that stage. Because sometimes life gets so busy, we get so bogged down, and we're almost thinking, Lord, maybe today's maybe not a good time. We've got the kids' birthday party this afternoon. We've got this we've planned and that we've planned. But maybe next week. The early church was so excited that Jesus could come any day. He could come before the thunderstorm this afternoon. And we need to be ready for that. And those who really love his appearing, they could be eligible for a crown. So five crowns. So there's gold, silver, precious stones and five crowns. But as they say in the ads, but wait, there's more. This one, this parable we've read, implies that we could get to rule over cities. Ten cities, five cities. And you say, okay, this is a parable. You can't press every detail to the last point. But what does Paul say, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy 2, verse 12? If we suffer with him, we will rule with him. Revelation, it says, they reigned with him forever and ever. But maybe you're saying, I don't think I want to run a city. I mean, look at our last, our last sort of civic elections. Nobody wanted to volunteer to be a councillor or a mayor or anything else because it's such a frustrating job and there's so many problems. Look, you're not talking about cities here with potholes and red tape and awkward fellow councillors. Look at John there studying the New Jerusalem. Beautiful walls made out of jasper. You walk in through pearl gates. You walk in along gold streets. Not a very thin film of tar seal over stones like we do up north. They, they can almost spray paint a bit of black onto some stones and call that a road. And every time it rains heavily, there are enormous potholes. It's not like that at all. There's no red tape to, to, to choke people. And there's trees lining these beautiful boulevards and trees that have different fruit every month. And there's a pure water of crystal of life. No pollution. 
absolutely spectacular. And no worries about blackouts or power failures because it says the Lamb is the light thereof. God provides the illumination for the entire city. Now, if that's what the headquarters, the main city looks like, I would suspect ruling over one of the lesser cities, they'd be built to a very high building code and you'd work with very nice people and it would be a pleasure to do it. So I found this amazing. Down here on earth, God gives us each the same amount. With that, we're free to trade. And if we trade, we can be like that person who was given 10 pounds, the equivalent of three months' salary, maybe $15,000. From that, he got another 10 pounds, which he got to keep, plus ruling over 10 cities. Imagine investing $15,000 of someone else's money and ending up with 10 cities. So just get some picture of how mind-blowing it is. Because Jesus is saying, I'm coming. I'm coming quickly. The last verse or the second last verse of the Bible, Jesus says, look, I'm coming quickly. And my reward is with me to repay those who've worked for me. Does this imply that Christianity is a sort of greedy business that is out to get as much money as possible? No. Jesus gives us rewards. But you read about the elders in Revelation. They get their crowns, and what do they do? The first thing they do is take the crowns off, and they put it down at Jesus' feet. Because the value of the reward is not so much its intrinsic value, but the person who gives it. If a present is given to you by someone special, it means so much more. And as we're seeing earlier in the video, seeing someone face to face. Now imagine that day when you see Jesus face to face for the first time. I don't think you'll be strutting around saying, I've got five crowns, ten cities, gold, silver, precious. That means absolutely nothing because the real, real reward is Jesus. To be with him forever and ever and ever in a perfect place, that's the real reward. And on the basis of that, Moses says, So teach us to number, to count our days, that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. Sometimes one hour flows into one day, into one week, into one month, and we look back and think, what did we do? Maybe from today onwards, let's count every day, and let's make every day count for Jesus. Let's invest in his kingdom. Let's devote ourselves to kingdom business. As Brian said in the newsletter, if you don't use it, you lose it. You're given those 10 minors, those 10, that's the Hebrew word for the pounds. And if you don't use those, you will lose them. It's only one life. It'll soon be passed. It's only what's done for Christ will last. Shall we pray? Our Father, we just thank you that you so loved the world that you gave us your only begotten Son. Thank you, Lord, that we are poor, sinful creatures. We're like blind Bartimaeus by the side of the road begging. But you are so generous, so kind, and you've had such wonderful rewards for us. And Lord, we look forward to the time when we'll be in heaven with you.
We'll see your glory. We'll see you running the world properly for the first time. Thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.